Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Republican Bob Stefanowski ran for Connecticut governor in 2018, narrowly losing to Ned Lamont. Now, Stefanowski, a Connecticut native and Madison resident, is back to take on Lamont again. Today, where we live, Bob Stefanowski joins us to talk about his second run for governor, and he'll take your questions too. Here's the number 888 720 9677. That's 888 720 9677. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, the Republican State Party nominating convention is in May, but Stefanowski has been described as the presumptive frontrunner. Coming up, we'll get analysis on the gubernatorial race from Hartford Current's Daniela Altamari. With us now on Zoom is Bob Stefanowski. Bob, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Thanks for having me on. Now, I remember in 2018, uh, we did not have a chance to talk. And already I can tell you that your campaign is running a better campaign talking to public radio. Thank you for your availability today. (laughs) Yeah, I apologize for that. We were not going to make the same mistake twice. So I I really appreciate you agreeing to have me on with you. So, Bob, you're running again. So did you make up your mind the day after Election Day 2018? And why run again? We didn't, you know, my wife and Amy and I, we, uh, we decided to stay active and uh, we stayed involved in issues like the toll uh, battles in Connecticut. Um, we were involved very early on in COVID. We worked with the, the Jewish Federation of Greater New Haven and we were able to source uh, surgical masks early in the pandemic when, when the state was having trouble finding them. And we were trying to get a better sense of what the issues are out there and had some really, really rewarding experiences. We ended up handing out 1.6 million masks across Connecticut, got to know a lot of people in different parts of the state, particularly um, in some of the bigger cities. Um, we were really, really pleased. We won an award from the NAACP in, in Waterbury for some of our masks with a youth group there. Um, but to answer your question, it, it probably wasn't until about 90, 120 days ago that we really decided to to take the plunge and, and, and get back into this game. Our listeners remember when you ran in 2018, you were promising to eliminate the state income tax over several years. Justin tweeted, will you try to get rid of the state income tax again if, if elected, Bob? You know, we'll try to lower taxes, but but you, you learn a lot, uh, Lucy, as a first-time candidate. It, it is a totally different world. I, I had never been a politician before. Um, and I think having spent time around the state, it's much more about affordability. People are struggling with their utility bills. I mean, you know, when you're getting a utility bill and the delivery charge for the power is higher than the energy rate, you scratch your set head and you say, why? Um, income tax is a, big, is a big deal, certainly. But, but for many people, it's the car tax. Um, it's the sales tax. When you've got inflation at 40-year at, at highs, and a fixed sales tax rate, it makes it very, very hard for people to afford to buy prepared foods and when they go to buy things. So this time around, it's more about overall affordability. 
making Connecticut more affordable for everyone, not just lowering the capital gains rate or, or helping a certain segment of the population, but making Connecticut more affordable across the board. So this time around, you're talking about a, a plan to reduce the sales tax. So tell us more about that, because I, I know in past years, municipalities uh, have really wanted to get uh, more of that sales tax to help them deal with the regressive property tax in our state, Bob. So what's your plan? Well, we need to reduce both. And, and again, with a 6.35% fixed rate for sales tax and prices inflating every day, the, govern, the governor is getting more and more money every day. And with a budget account surplus, they don't need it right now. So we should lower that rate and at a minimum keep things where they are right now and, and being able to help avoid increases in, in sales taxes. Property taxes, the, the issue there is those funds go to the municipality. So we should lower property and sales taxes as well. But you have to be sure that the, that the state government gives that money back to the municipalities. That's their main source of income. So I personally, I think there's too much money being spent up in Hartford right now for things that don't add a lot of value. And we need to get the funding back out to the municipalities for education, um, for the local people, and, and to try to stimulate the economy from the bottom up rather than from the top down. You mentioned a lot of spending in Hartford uh, that you disagree with. So can you talk more about that, um, you know, pinpoint some areas that you think um, are wasteful? Well, I think the first thing, Lucy, is, is we've got to strengthen the ethics laws in, in Hartford. There are too many examples of money just being misappropriated. You look at what happened in West Haven, where the town got $1.2 of money that was supposed to be helping people that are impacted by COVID. And a lot of people have been badly impacted by that. And you've got a legislator who took half of the money and went and bought uh, chips at a casino. Uh, you've got allegations, and, and I stress their allegations at this point, of, of government kickbacks to, to contractors building schools across the state. Um, in my opinion, the, the, the governor giving a, a no-bid contract to a company owned partially by his wife, I don't think that's right. And now, it's allowed under the ethics rules, but spending like that um, shouldn't be allowed. And, and one of the things I'd like to do is, is strengthen the ethics laws increase the amount of transparency coming out of Hartford, because that's our money. That's not their money. It's our money. And then also auditing every agency across the government to make sure that they're spending it wisely. Again, this is our money. We work hard for it. We send it up to Hartford and, and we trust that our, that our officials are doing the right thing with it. You know, and the past few years have proven that that's not the case. So people of Connecticut deserve to know where it's spent. I have to believe we're going to find some more fraud, waste and abuse, and that will lower spending and it'll allow us to give back more to the communities. Let's break that down a little bit more. Uh, you'd mentioned the no-bid contract, so you're referring to Semaphore. This was a company in which uh, First Lady Annie Lamont, her venture capital firm, had invested. But the, co the state also gave contracts to, I believe, three other companies uh, to help with testing at the height of the pandemic. And so I wanted to, to, to hear more from you about, you know, again, the, the, the Lamonts have said any profit they make from that, they would donate. When you talk about strengthening ethics laws, so if you were elected, you know, how much disclosure would you make about your own finances and business activities? Because as you mentioned, the Lamonts did nothing wrong based on state ethics laws currently yeah so so first of all there are there are hundreds of, of testing companies and and you know in my opinion 
um, there are plenty to check from. And, and to pick one where the governor's spouse owns an interest in it, I don't think is right. To your point, the ethics laws say it's okay. So number one, in, in my administration, I don't think any public official or their family should make a dime of profit off of money from taxpayers on state contracts. Number two, I will dispose of every investment I have. Um, unfortunately, I don't have the portfolio that Governor Lamont does. But what I do have, I will dispose of any asset that has any potential conflict of interest with the state of Connecticut, because I think you need to be neutral on it. The other question I would ask, if, if the transaction was perfectly fine, why does Governor Lamont feel the need to give the money to charity? And why, two years after we've been into this contract, do we still not know how much the governor and his wife made on this contract? So I don't know whether they did anything wrong or not, Lucy, but it's a distraction. Um, it's an unneeded distraction in my mind. We should be focused on education. We should be focused on public safety. We should be public, public focused on affordability. And, and the issue with these scandals is it takes your focus and attention away from what the people of Connecticut really need. And we don't need these. And, and the way to cleanse ourselves from ever happening again is you divest all your investments so there's no potential for a conflict of interest. We're going to be talking about uh, crime, affordability, and other topics with Bob Stefanowski here on Where We Live. He is a Republican candidate running for governor again. Uh, you can call with your question to him, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I'm going to start with Greg in West Hartford. Greg, you're on the show. Go ahead. Hi, good morning, and nice to meet you, Bob. Uh, Hi, my question to you is, good morning. Uh, my question to you is, is uh, you think that former President Donald Trump is to blame for the January 6th uh, events, and do you actually believe that it was an insurrection? Uh, so I've, I've, on the day that it happened, Greg, I came out and said it's a horrible thing. Um, it's tragic for the country that it happened, and it should absolutely never happen again. I think that anyone, anyone, regardless of level, there's an investigation undergoing. It should be thorough. And anyone at whatever level that's found responsible should be held accountable. I've also said from the start that President Biden is the rightfully elected president of the United States right now. And it's time to move forward. I'm running for governor of Connecticut. I'm focused on the people of Connecticut. I think the more time, and, and again, the, the, the reason to look back is to find out who's accountable. If that includes the president, so be it. We need to see the investigation to conclusion. But as governor, I need to be focused forward. We've got the second most expensive state in the nation. We've got the highest energy costs in the continental U.S. If I spend a lot of time thinking about what happened two years ago at a federal level, I'm not serving the people of Connecticut. So it was a horrible event. I condemned it when it happened. I will continue to condemn it. But we need to move forward and fix what Connecticut is all about. I wanted to ask you, Bob, uh, you're a registered Republican. I wanted to hear more about you know, why you uh, are attracted to this party. Because at one time, uh, according to the Connecticut Mirror, when you were running the first time for governor, you had actually been registered as a Democrat. So, so tell us why you switched. Yeah, I get that. I get that question a lot. I think... <clears throat> What's unfortunate is how how partisan uh, politics have become, because when you when you think back at it, Democrats and, and Republicans really have the right and the same objectives. Right. We, we want an affordable state and we want affordability across the board. We want a good education for our kids. We want to feel safe when we go to bed at night. We don't want to have a situation where we leave our car 
in the driveway unlocked. And even though we shouldn't have left it unlocked, that somebody steals it and that it's happening multiple times. I think the biggest difference between Republicans and Democrats is how we get there. And in my view, Democrats have created in Connecticut a sense of dependency. They, 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 you know, we both want to take care of people and it's the right thing to do. But I think the difference from Republicans is we want to do it through job creation. We want to do it through a better education. We want to do it through supporting our trade schools so that kids, when they get out of trade schools, have a job. We want to create vibrant cities so people like my three daughters want to stay here. And we want to get people so that they can support and have a good life and use the money to do that. And I don't think there's really that much different at the end of the day between what Democrats want and what Republicans want. And, and part of the issue, Lucy, is a lot of people don't want to get into politics these days because it's so partisan. My wife and I thought a lot about this. And as you know, we put a lot of money into the campaign and we thought if we actually were looking at buildings in New London. Do we start a charter school? Do we open a boys and girls club? What's our best way to impact and help people? So one of the things I will do when I'm governor is I'm really gonna try to be less partisan. And whether people agree with my positions or not, they are my constituents and I need to listen. Now, I may not always agree. I may not agree with all of your listeners and there's probably some of your listeners that will never vote for me. But I can tell you when I win and I say when, not if, I will be as concerned about their interests as anyone else. And, and, and I'm getting on a roll here, Lucy, but the problem with politics today is we demonize our opponents. And our opponents, when you're governor, they're our constituents. So I'm not going to demonize anyone. I'm going to listen. I'm going to be balanced. I surround myself. I've made a career of surrounding myself with people that are different than me because I want to hear alternate viewpoints. And then we're going to do what we think is right. But it should not be, at least in Connecticut, I can't control what happens in Washington. But at least in Connecticut, it should be collaborative. It should be inclusive. And we should join hands and figure out how we're going to correct what's going on in our state right now. You mentioned uh, with the Democratic Party uh, and dependence, uh, you talk about the cities in our state. Uh, Thomas wanted to remind us that you did write an op-ed. You write a lot of op-eds. Uh, this one in yes. the Wall Street Journal, the other, I believe, in January. I don't know if it was this year or last year, probably, where you were very critical of Hartford. And so I want to hear more about what you're going to help do to help cities when you talk about dependence, because we know in our cities there's high poverty. And uh, when we think about ways uh, to help cities, that have uh, limited um, ability to, uh, to have a uh, property tax uh, to help uh, with their schools and other services. So as governor, what would you do to help the capital city in Hartford? Yeah, so let me first address Tom. And I, I caught, a, Thomas, I caught a lot of grief over that. <laughs> it was January 1st, and I remember it well. And the distinction to me is I was not being critical of Hartford. My wife and I met at the Gold Building in Hartford in 1984. And we would go out to Brown Thompson and, and we'd have a nice dinner and it was a vibrant city. The reason I pointed out the issues is because we need to fix Hartford. My daughters, when they go out or they go away, they drive right by Hartford on their way to New York and they drive right by Bridgeport and Stanford on the way to, uh, I'm sorry, to Boston and right by Bridgeport and Stanford on their way to New York. And we need to create vibrant cities, but by ignoring the problems, and just pretending that everything is all right is not the way to get there. Now, that editorial may have been a little bit harsher than it should be. And if I had it to do over again, it'd be a little more gentle. But when you're spending $16,000 per kid in Hartford, $16,000 per year, 
and only 80% of the, 60% of those kids are graduating from high school. And only 20% of those kids are testing at the age appropriate level in math. There is something wrong. So you, in my view, and again, this is another place where Democrats and Republicans may not agree. We're both for great education, but my answer is not pouring more and more money into, into schools that aren't working. In my view, and I know a lot of your listeners probably don't agree with this, the funding should follow the child. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to abandon schools in cities where, where kids want to go. We need to support them all. But look at what some of the magnet schools in our state have done. Look at some of the charter schools. My niece went to a magnet school. They're in New Haven. She went to a magnet school. She ended up going to Brown University and getting a terrific degree. I'm a product of the public schools in Connecticut. So I really want to support schools in the cities. The difference is the way that we're trying to do it. So I don't know. I'm on a roll again. And, well, and you can cut me yeah, off at any let's time. Take you, but I, but, let's take some calls. Let's take some calls. I feel from... passionate about this. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's not that we don't support the cities. It's the way that we want to do it. I grew up in New Haven. We had to move out because because the school, we couldn't go to the public schools. I didn't want to leave my friends and family behind. And, and I think we need to create that for people. But I'll shut up and, and let you take some calls. Well, let's take some calls. Actually, Mary's calling in from Hartford. Mary, what's your question for Bob Stefanowski? Well, given the climate and biodiversity crisis that we're all facing, I'm wondering how you as a Republican are really squaring with how the Republicans have have really kind of abandoned um, environmental conservation. And, um, you know, this whole idea that everything needs to be monetized, you know, that we shrink government, our government scientists have been lost. And um, our EPA are are uh, so many important um, important uh, people in government are needed to manage uh, and and tend to the environment. It's the environment gives so much to us, but it's not free, and we can't entirely monetize it. How do you, as a Republican, square with um, the way? Uh, industry has damaged the environment and and how we need to protect it. Bob? You know, and let me just say, I appreciate these honest questions and, and, and I, you know, you always get a little bit nervous <laughs> um, and I appreciate the tone that people are taking and I appreciate having the opportunity to respond and I'd love to come on again. Um, first of all, there is absolutely something going on in our environment. I don't fully understand it, but when the temperatures are going up and you see the, the volatility in, in weather patterns, there is something going on. Again, it's a difference in how you approach it. Governor Lamont proposed a TCI tax. Now you're you're adding a tax onto fossil fuels and that's gonna make it even more for the people that that Democrats like to claim to protect and we all wanna protect. It makes it harder to fill up your gas tank and get to work and go to buy your groceries. I think we need to be looking at new forms of energy. I've been doing some work on green energy, green hydrogen. If we can start to use a technological reason or effort to do that and bring jobs to Connecticut, we've got to get off of our dependence on fossil fuels. But by throwing a tax onto it and and claiming that that's for environmental purposes when pretty much every state around us is not doing the same thing, that is not the way to go. So, and and, and again, we do it on both sides. I mean, Democrats like to to, 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 to label Republicans and Republicans like to label Democrats. And, And there is a wide spectrum within each party. But I do believe in climate change. 
I am a big protector of the environment. Again, I think it gets back to the way that we should do it. And the way to do it with me is there are some terrific technologies out there. We can bring jobs to Connecticut. We've got most one of the most innovative states in the entire nation. We need to leverage that. Do you believe what scientists tell us about climate change, Bob? And when we think about, uh, you mentioned this, the TCI uh, being a tax, uh, the way that uh, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, how that money would be invested in urban areas that see a lot of pollution from uh, transportation emissions, building green infrastructure. So without TCI, how do you get there to help those communities? Well, number one, I think we should bring the private sector in more um, because the private sector Again, nine times out of 10, I think something is better uh, run by the private sector than the public sector. Now, there are some very good public sector agencies, but the private sector right now in other parts of the country and other parts of the world are doing some astonishing things with technology. They're turning water into energy, green hydrogen. Those are the, and, and who better prepared to do that than the state of Connecticut with Yukon and Yale? And as you know, pollution has no border. So we can put a TCI tax up and, and we can limit it, but when the six or seven states to the south of us have decided to not adopt that tax and the wind is blowing in our direction, it's not gonna help that much. So I think we need to get off our dependence on fossil fuels, bring in technology, that the private sector is, is dying to invest in these type of technologies. So if you could create some tax incentives, if you could have a better labor force in Connecticut coming out of Yale, coming out of the trade schools so the companies want to do it here rather than in Florida or South Carolina, it could have a phenomenal impact on Connecticut. But we need to think innovatively. We need to think forward. It's another perfect example. I don't know if all Republicans care about climate change, but I do. The difference is how we're going to solve it. And, and to me, Lucy, and you want to call it a, a, a fee, that's fine. But to throw another tax on the people of Connecticut when our gas prices are already where they are, I don't think that's the right way to go at it. You're hearing Bob Stefanowski here on Where We Live. If you're waiting to ask your question, stay on the line. We need to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This is Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today is Bob Stefanowski, a Republican running for Connecticut governor for a second time against Ned Lamont. What questions do you have for him? Join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Scott's calling in. Scott from Hamden, go ahead. Uh, thank you for uh, taking the call, uh, Mr. Stefanowski. Thank you for being available. And uh, I apologize uh, in advance for what might be a technocratic question. Um, but uh, you mentioned earlier in the broadcast um, about auditing state agencies, uh, and it's certainly in your, your media advertisements. I'm wondering if I should take this as an indictment of the work done by uh, the legislative uh, uh, APA office auditors of public accounts. Bob? And I admire uh, the work that the auditors are doing, but I, I looked at an audit report that came out um, a week ago, and the recommendations, there are hundreds of recommendations made by auditors that are just not being followed up on. I used to be an internal auditor. <laughs> you know, I started as a CPA with Price Waterhouse, and the most frustrating thing for an auditor is to work really hard to get to the bottom of things and then have management do nothing about it. If I was a CEO in the private sector and I had the number of audit issues that have been uncovered, that internal control issues that were never followed up on, I would be fired. And I remember calling a press person when I saw it, it said, how can this be? And the answer was, well, this is the way it is all the time. And one of the problems with Connecticut is the bar has been lowered so far that we're putting up things with things that are insane. You know, again, in my opinion, we have a governor who gave a, a, a no bid contract for $26 million to a company owned by his wife, and everybody nods their head. We've got audit reports showing hundreds, thousands of unfollowed issues, and we're not following up on them. So it's not an indictment at all of, of the current um, auditing process. In fact, I admire what they're doing, but we need to follow up. We need to be diligent about it. We need to hold people accountable. And right now, you know, you've had situations where where legislators are drinking on duty in the Capitol and testifying on the floor of the House of the Representatives impaired by, by, by alcohol. And, 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 and Governor Lamont gets asked about it and he says, well, if it helps me get my vote, I'll look the other way. So one of the things we're going to do is change the culture of Connecticut. We're going to be full disclosure. We're going to be transparent. We're going to act with integrity. I'm going to hire people that I'm proud of. And it starts at the top. And, and in, my, in my view, we've lost some of that in Connecticut. And that's what we're going to bring back when we're governor. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Ross is calling in from Tolland. Ross, what's your question? Yeah. Hey, Bob. I'm Ross from Tolland. And one thing I have to ask you is if you become governor, are you going to fix the state offices in Connecticut, mainly ones like the DMV? You know, like the DMVs in Florida and Arizona are very efficient. And you don't need to do much here, like for CDLs, driver license tests, any of that. You don't have to go to the DMV and do them. You can just do them at home, and it's a lot easier. If you ever become governor, we'd be able to fix those offices and make them efficient, like the ones in Arizona and Florida, where you don't have to go in and wait for stuff. And you don't have to go in and pay all these things to do basic things. Oh, thank you, Ross, for your question. Bob? Got an answer for him? Yeah, no, Ross, I'll actually give the governor a little credit on this. He did go in and, and improve the computer systems. There are some things that you can do online right now. Um, I do think it's still 
too bureaucratic. Um, during the last campaign, I, I, I went in and I talked to some people at, at the front line who work incredibly hard, but they don't have the tools to do their job. I think it's a little bit top heavy. I think there's there's too many leaders and levels of management as opposed to people on the front line. We've got some terrific people working there, but I do, and, and I haven't been recently, my license comes up for renewal in a month, so I'll find out. I do think there's been some improvement in terms of automation, but you need to automate. You should only have to go to the physical location for, for a minority of things, not for everything. And when you get there, there needs to be better service. And and I do think that's one that's headed in the right direction, though I'll give the governor some credit for that. You mentioned affordability earlier. Uh, we have a, a reporter here at Connecticut Public, Camila Vajejo, has a question for you about what you think is the best way to improve housing affordability in the state for both renters and homeowners, Bob. Sure. Um, first of all, when we talk about affordability, again, it's got to be all across the state. It's not any particular segment. And, you know, with respect to home buyer, people that own homes, I think it's it's certainly property tax. We're going to have a tough situation with, with inflation at 40-year highs where mortgage rates are going to start to tick up. With respect to renters, you know, if you lower the taxes on the property owner, you should also see a lowering of the rent charges or at a minimum, a lowering the increase of the rent charges. For people that have cars, lower that tax on cars. Governor Lamont promised a $300 million property tax cut when I was debating him four years ago. And then his first action was to raise taxes in his first year by $1.8 billion. Now we're in an election year and he's talking about cutting car taxes and property taxes. I hope that he does. I hope it passes the legislature. But one of the things I'm going to do when I, when I go in is I'm going to have an achievable agenda. I'm not going to overpromise. And I'm going to show people in that first year that I'm going to deliver or at least try my best. I probably won't have a majority in both the Senate and the House. I'm going to have to work with both sides of the aisle, but I'm going to put a reasonable agenda out there and I'm going to try like heck to deliver it. And one of the things is going to be to reduce the cost of housing and the overall affordability of Connecticut. You know that there was a pretty hot debate uh, last year within the Connecticut General Assembly looking at exclusionary zoning practices and how you can get uh, towns uh, to permit more multifamily homes, houses, housing that's affordable for middle class families, uh, the families that you're talking about, Bob. And so what's your take on that? You know, should uh, towns like Madison and others uh, do more to permit affordable housing in their communities? And how do you get there? I think we should do more. And again, I think there's a difference in approaches. You know, towns should be at that, at a minimum, at that, that threshold of 10% affordable housing. And I think towns that aren't, you've got to be very stringent and, and you've got to make them do that. I personally don't think turning over local zoning right now to the state is the right way to go at it. I think one of the benefits of Connecticut is the distinction of the different towns and the cultures of each, but that doesn't mean these towns need to be exclusionary. In fact, it means the opposite. It means that we should have places where people can move in. But the other thing, Lucy, is we need to get vibrant cities. We shouldn't be moving from a city to a suburb because we hate the city. We should be moving because we love the city but for some reason, we want to move to the to the neighboring town and we need to have more flow of people in Connecticut throughout these towns. And it is incumbent. It is incumbent on each town and city to provide that opportunity. I don't think it should be done through a state mandate. 
I don't think it should be done by regional zoning laws, but I do think we should hold these. There's a there's a rule out there that you have to have a certain amount of, of, of affordable housing and we need to enforce it. And if we don't enforce it, there should be consequences. But without more action from uh, the state capital, you know, when you talk about enforcing, you know, these towns haven't been building or permitting uh, multifamily projects to, to come in. And so, you know, talk to talk to that part of the, the debate. You know, you have local zoning oh. committees that are saying no or they're coming up with uh, acreage uh, uh, limits and how much parking that that these uh, developments need to have. And as you mentioned, that people who want to move from the cities, they, they aren't able to because they they can't find affordability outside. And all all affordability shouldn't just be in an inner city. Shouldn't they be across the board in our state, Bob? I absolutely agree with that. And, and as governor, you've got some levers, right? You've got payment in lieu of taxes payments. You could threaten to not do that if if a certain town um, doesn't reach the, the level of, of, of affordable housing. You can certainly sit down with some of these uh, town officials and express the importance of it. But I and, and Lucy, your listeners may not agree with me on this, but I don't think it's totally throwing out the local zoning rules. You've got examples in, in, in most of it's in Fairfield County where, you know, you've got 100 yards between two houses and then, a, you know, an 18 foot skyscraper. I'm exaggerating for emphasis, but an 18 foot skyscraper being squeezed in because you can totally avoid. Now, the answer to that is is to get the town in compliance so that developers don't have the opportunity. You've got to be careful with developers, too, because they're looking to, you know, to take advantage of these things. So I think it's a balance. And and I, I don't think people should be stuck anywhere because they can't afford to go to a neighboring town. We need to make it accessible to all. We need to do it in the right way. And I will be tougher on the towns to make sure that they provide that opportunity and enough affordable housing for people to be mobile. And when we talk about affordable housing, housing for families, not just elderly, Bob? Oh, it's both. I mean, I grew up in New Haven. It was a three-family house. We were on the bottom floor. My in-laws were on the second floor. And we had Southern Connecticut uh, college students on the top floor. And I'll tell you, it was a great environment. I loved living there and I hated leaving. But you know the reason you talk about affordable housing, the other reason people are moving out is education. And when my mom and dad came to me and said, we're moving to North Haven, and I asked why, and they said, we can't afford private schools, and North Haven has better public schools, I cried for a week. So should we have had the opportunity to move to North Haven? Absolutely. But should we have been forced out of out of uh, Pond Street on Dixwell Avenue because the schools weren't weren't up to snuff? Absolutely not. We need to provide optionality. And, and people should be able to do what they can and, and, and live where they want to without having it be overburdensome. Let's take another call. Gene's calling in from Guilford. Gene, what's your question? Um, yes, uh, thanks for taking my call. And, uh, Bob, it's really great to, uh, to, uh, to have you available for these questions. Um, recently, we had a very ugly school board election in uh Guilford, where there were some right-wing extremists that had come out and were using their fear-based boogeymen and uh, all sorts of things. They won their primaries and they ran for school board, and, and it was avoided, but these things have been happening all over the country. And when these people get into place, they start banning books, they start taking away the power from the professionals to set the curriculums. I just wonder how you feel about that and uh, what you would, where you see Connecticut headed. Well, first of all, I, I, I think, and, and thanks for that, John. The um, people should have the right to express their views. 
And whether we believe in those views or not, we, they should have the right, but they should not be able to do it with violence. They should not be able to do it with insulting tactics. Um, there is nothing more personal to people than their kids' education. And we should have more participation in the, in the boards, but it needs, to be, uh, it needs to be calm. It needs to be rational. You know, you had a situation where there was a cartoon out there several months ago, and it was three, I believe they were women, in, in Halloween costumes, and the caption was, here are Republicans going to the school board. And, and there's as many examples going the other way. I'm, I'm not trying to be judgmental, but we can't demonize people who think differently. I do believe that parents should have a say in their kids' education. I absolutely believe that. It's one of the most important things. I do believe in school choice. I think the funding should follow the child, but I do believe in supporting all of the cities and all of the, the school districts and all of the towns and all of their school districts and making education affordable to everyone. But I do think where it crosses the line to me and, and January 6th was the perfect example, it cannot turn violent. But part of America is you can express your view, but it needs to be peacefully and it needs to be um, you know, politely for lack of a better term. Kathy tweeted earlier, Bob, she wants to know what your understanding is of the state's human services and social services infrastructure and how you would plan to address the needs of Connecticut residents with mental health conditions and substance use disorders. They're both critical. I mean, when, when you see overdoses in schools, I think finally we've got, um, you know, the right focus on it, the issues with fentanyl. Um, I think that um, mental services, particularly with children, we've had children who have basically missed an entire year of school. You can argue whether the school should have been open or not. We could get into that debate. But the reality is at this point, it doesn't matter. The social skills of, of, of kids, um, home violence is up, suicides are up. We need to be doing things over the summer. We need to be funding catch-up programs. We need to be working on the social skills. You could have the argument over mass. We can have that debate, Lucy, but that has impaired some kids' ability to develop, and we need to catch these kids up. We should be investing in that. We shouldn't be arguing over whether, you know, a contract was given to a friends and family to build a school. We should be talking about what we're going to do to get these kids catched up or caught up, I should say. Um, and investing in that, investing in mental services, I do think when you look at what happens as some of the agencies like DCF and some of the waste and some of the fraud, I think we need to be more efficient with it. But I don't think we should be cutting funding. It's one of the most important things we have right now. We need to do it more efficiently and we need to be more stringent about how we do it. We're almost out of time. You're the presumptive nominee again, running as a Republican. Got to ask, are you thinking about a running mate? Who's on your list, Bob? <laughs> There's been a lot of interest. Um, I'm, I'm really happy that, that, that I can focus. Uh, this last time around, we had 12 candidates on the Republican side. Um, I, I'm, th I'm not dodging your question, Lucy. We're, we've been talking to people. We're going through a process. Um, I'd like to have diversity on the ticket. Um, I bring a certain perspective. I've spent my entire, you know, most people like to surround themselves with people that are like them. I've still got some buddies from high school that I hang around with. But I like to surround myself with people that think differently than me. It challenges me. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. But if I'm going to re represent the state of Connecticut and the, the wonderful diversity that we have, I would love to have a partner from a different part of the state with a different perspective that can bring that to the table. So you'll come back and announce that on our show next time, Bob? 
<laughs> I would like to be back on, though. I think the, the questions were terrific. And I, I know there's a lot of your listeners that may not be the biggest fan of mine. But my goal this time is to get out there, to let people hear what I have to say. And if after that you don't like me, I get it. But I really want to get out and, and tell people what it's about because I do think I'm the right choice. I care about Connecticut. I've lived here my entire life. I started as a middle-class person. I was successful. More people should have the opportunities that I had in Connecticut. And that's what we're going to bring. We'd like to have you back. A lot of listeners are uh, still on the line to ask you questions, but we know you have to run. Bob Stefanowski, the Republican candidate running in the Connecticut gubernatorial race. Uh, thank you for your time and come back soon. I promise you I will come back. Thank you. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Up next, we get analysis from Daniela Altamari, Statehouse reporter for the Hartford Current. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just heard from Bob Stefanowski, a Republican running again in Connecticut's gubernatorial race. For some analysis, joining us now is Daniela Altamari. She's the state house reporter for the Hartford Current. Daniela, thanks for coming back on. Sure. Glad to be here. <laughs> so what did you think uh, of uh, what you heard from Bob Stefanowski and, and how people are perceiving his second attempt uh, running for governor? Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. Um, you know, one of uh, one of the first issues right out of the box, the income tax. And uh, of course, that was very controversial when he proposed that back in 2018, eliminating the state income tax. It's really sort of, uh, well, if not impossible, highly improbable and highly difficult. Um, and I think he realized that, you know, he said something uh, when you were when you were asking about that, that Basically, you know, you kind of live and you learn. He was running the first time in 2018. He'd never run for uh, any kind of uh, office like this before or really anything before. And um, it's easy to come out with, you know, talking points and perhaps listen to consultants and say, hey, you need to get rid of the income tax. It's unpopular. But once you start, you know, doing the math and realize that doesn't work, um, you come back. So I think we'll see. Uh, a wiser uh, candidate, certainly. You learn a lot through the process, uh, maybe more nuanced positions than he had, um, you know, uh, in 2018. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how, you know, what he's learned and what he's changing. And he continues to want to distance himself from Donald Trump, uh, wanting to focus, as he mentioned, on local politics in Connecticut. You know, how do you think uh, that plays out uh, for voters uh, statewide in Connecticut, Daniela? Yeah, he's he's lucky in that they're um, very unlikely to be a primary. He is, as you pointed out in the interview, the presumptive nominee. So that gives him a lot of freedom uh, at, on lots of levels, really. I mean, you know, in terms of money and in terms of attention, he can focus solely on the governor. But he also can um, perhaps pitch a wider message early on because, um, you know, the Republican base in Connecticut, uh, President Trump's brand and his message remain strong in, in some parts of the state among Republicans. And I think the fact that um, Bob doesn't really have to sort of, uh, you know, reach those folks in the same way he might have had he faced a 
challenger who maybe was to the right of him uh, for the nomination. I think that frees him up. Um, somebody asked, I thought it was interesting. I think it might've been Gannon Long or somebody on Twitter who said, you know, isn't it remarkable that we still have to kind of ask these questions, you know, was Joe Biden the winner of the 2020 election? You know, Stefanowski clearly said, yes, you know, he believes that. But, you know, at this point, um, it's kind of interesting that we're still asking Republican candidates that question. You know, he also uh, hit Lamont hard on on some of the scandals recently, uh, looking at uh, Costa Diamantes uh, being fired from OPM, questions about uh, the, uh, related to the state's attorney also resigning uh, when when the state's attorney was asking for pay raises for his staff, uh, the Costa's uh, daughter uh, working uh, for the state's attorney, also mentioned some of for you know, how is this playing out uh, again across the state when when residents are interested in a, a governor and a candidate running for governor? Is this something that you think uh, they are really focused on, or as Bob was talking about, they're thinking about just affordability and impacting what issues impact their families at home? I think the um, fallout of this burgeoning and still largely. Um, fresh uh, investigation um, is going to really depend on on the timing. Obviously, uh, Bob and any Republican candidate is going to seek to exploit that and the questions surrounding that. I mean, these are really serious, serious issues. And uh, there's a lot of good journalism being done um, by lots of different news organizations exposing that. And I think, you know, as the spring and summer wears on, we'll see what kind of a drip, you know, this this, uh, you know, these questions, you know, how, how they play out. I mean, at this point, you know, in February, it's hard to know what is going to be top of mind in November. We all know nobody in, uh, you know, um, nobody in April of 2019 could have ever thought that, you know, a year later we'd be in a global pandemic. Things happen fast. But at this point, you know, the issues raised, um, by uh, by the reporters and by the federal investigators looking into uh, what's happened within the administration are are very serious, and I would be shocked if they are uh, not a campaign issue. You know, come November. And looking at how Governor Lamont and his campaign are responding uh, to uh, these uh, points that Stefanowski is raising, uh, obviously the incumbent having to be on on the defensive here, uh, what are we hearing from the campaign? Are they being forceful enough uh, when uh, these claims and allegations are being brought up? I mean, personally, I haven't heard much from the Lamont campaign. He does have a team in place. He has a campaign manager. I haven't heard much from them on on this issue. Perhaps they're waiting to see how the investigation plays out before before weighing in. Um, So I don't know. Um, But certainly, you know, it's very early and um, a lot can happen. Um, but these are, you know, without a doubt, extremely serious um, allegations and raise a lot of questions that the governor uh, should be asked about and will be asked about, whether it's by Stefanowski or by the press or, or by both. Do you think this is going to be a civil race? Uh, Stefanowski saying, you know, uh, politics is too partisan and, you know, he's for the people. And so I'm just curious, you know, with his second attempt, uh, is this something that we can buy in February of 2020 or 2022 that it's going to be a civil campaign? It, that also is just so hard to predict. I mean, I, I think the one thing you can say about both uh, both of these men, they're, they're, they're nice people. They're good people. I mean, you know, whether they made mistakes or whether they're, 
they they did things wrong or or whether they have the wrong priorities. I mean, that's obviously up for the voters to decide. But you know, these are these are generally, I think, at least you know, we've seen nothing to indicate otherwise that they're that they're decent people who really both appear to have the the state's best interest at heart. So. Hopefully that will mean that we will get a fairly civil campaign, even though there are very serious issues on all sides and uh, both candidates need to to address, you know, some some really, really important questions about the state's future and about, you know, all these things we just discussed. And they are similar when you think about how both Bob Stefanowski and Ned Lamont coming from the private sector, uh, well-educated, wealthy, they think they can run government better. But once you get in, uh, into political office, you know, there's some real realities that set in. There's a learning curve, as Ned Lamont found out. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Governor Lamont had some famous and early stumbles in his, uh, you know, in his first uh year or so, you know, pre-pandemic, it's hard to remember now, but, you know, certainly the whole tolls issue was, you know, um, something that uh, that cost him politically and that and that people weren't too happy about, um, you know, just in the way that that he rolled it out and, and the way he, uh, you know, the way he um, handled that. So, um, you know, uh, again, you know, Bob has never held elective office. So, you know, who, who knows what kind of, you know, mistakes he will make. I mean, obviously it's a, a new skill. Everyone makes mistakes when they're doing something new. I think we had, we did hear today though, perhaps a willingness to learn from, you know, from the past and and not uh, propose things like eliminating the income tax that will really never happen. I should say uh, we've uh, described Bob Stefanowski as the presumptive front runner again, uh, a Republican running in the Connecticut's gubernatorial race. But there is another declared candidate, Susan Regan. So I just wanted to, to mention that. Uh, and uh, before we go, uh, Daniela, what will you be watching for in the next uh, couple of months? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, again, the, the, you know, how this investigation plays out, if it remains on the front pages of all the newspapers and on websites, you know, and and questions continue to swirl, that's going to kind of dominate things, I, I think, to some degree. But, you know, the legislature's in session. There's a lot of important business. We are still dealing with the pandemic. Uh, luckily, you know, not in the same way we were a couple of years ago, but, you know, it's still here. And so there's there's a lot going on. There's a lot to watch for. And I think it's going to be fascinating. Daniela Altamar, again, is a State House reporter for the Hartford Current. Daniela, always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks. Thank you so much. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Sujata Srinivasan. Kat Pastor is our technical director. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>